Well, this morning is going to be a, a little bit different. Uh, we just finished our series in the Psalms. We're going to begin a series in uh, Titus uh, either next week or the week after. Um, I'm planning on next week. But I've wanted to do um, this kind of standalone message today. Um, and it is answering this question. Why do we do what we do? If you came in this morning, you've got a little handout there. Um, and have you ever wondered that? For those of you who've been here at Redeemer, been a part of it for some time, you ever kind of wonder why it is we do what we do on a Sunday morning? Anybody, anybody curious about that? Well, this morning, you need to be curious no longer because we're going to be looking, uh, looking at that. A uh, little bit of backstory. I grew up in, um, I think most of my church upbringing has been what we call kind of like a, a seeker-sensitive type uh, church. And when we first started Redeemer, um, I kind of brought some of those church practices with me. And over the course of time, we started to kind of uh, refine it is what it is that we do and why we do it. And uh, we've we've changed our perspective in, in a quite in quite a few ways. So this morning, I want to talk about why it is that we do what we do. And. Uh, and it's going to be centered around these two basic questions. Does God care how we worship? And what does God want us to do in our worship time together? Okay. Why do we do what we do? And it's broken up into two parts here. Does God care how we worship? And the second part is, what does God want us to do in worship? Does God care how we worship? Not does he care that we worship? Does he care how we worship? And there's been two basic approaches to this question. Does God care how and uh, what kind of things are, are included in our corporate worship together as a, as a church? And so here are the two approaches. One is called the normative principle of worship. And the other one is the regulative principle of worship. One's normative. One is regular. What is the normative principle of worship we could be put this way anything not prohibited is permitted basically anything that god doesn't expressly forbid is permissible and able to use for worship and for gathering in a in a church it holds that unless scripture kind of explicitly rules something out um then these any kind of corporate worship elements that we would like to include can be included in the church's liturgy. And as I said, I kind of grew up in a seeker-sensitive uh, church movement that kind of really kind of came to increasing popularity in like the early 1980s and I think is continuing on through to today. And that's kind of the background that I had when I was growing up. That's the, the background that I kind of experienced. And back then, what, what, they, uh, what was kind of in popular for churches to do was to kind of survey unbelievers, people who didn't go to church, ask what they, uh, what they liked about church services, what they didn't like, and they kind of got their feedback, and they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to kind of craft uh, a church service based upon the likes and the dislikes of, of those who don't go in the hopes that they would kind of go. Can you understand the motivation? You know, uh, an understandable motivation. So they started to include things like dramas and skits and movie clips and dances and special music or uh, with secular songs. 
And the kind of the motto was, um, the message is the same, but the methods may change. Today, we're starting to see really the flowering of this, kind of the grandchildren of that movement. And I think uh, some of us, you may have seen the extreme forms of these kinds of things. Like how many of you have seen like WWE wrestlers on a Sunday morning service? No? Nobody else? Oh, what about full basketball courts? Obstacle courses. Have you ever seen video clips of a church where they've had people from the congregation come forward and run on an obstacle course to illustrate some truth? No? Nobody's seen these things? Do you have the internet? Facebook? <laughs> Um, or like sermon series around certain kind of shows, the popular Netflix shows, those kind of things. Uh, dancing Stormtroopers. Nobody's seen this, right? Maybe the Dancing Stormtroopers one. Okay, so that would be an example of the, the application of the normative principle of worship. Hey, Dancing Stormtroopers aren't forbidden in the scriptures, so let's use them, right? And again, you can understand the kind of the motivation behind it. The second one is the regulative principle of worship. Now, what this says is that anything not commanded is prohibited. So, in other words, the scripture is to be our guide. That God actually does care that we worship and he cares how we worship. He's laid down for us some principles of what we should do in our worship. Here are a couple of quotes to kind of help illustrate the, the uh, underpinnings behind that. Here's, here's a great one. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great line? Nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. I think that uh, that's kind of the idea behind this regulative principle of worship is that God has revealed for us how we are to worship him. Some time ago, we went through a series in Leviticus and we saw through all the multiple sacrifices that God had given that there was a way that he is to be worshipped. There's a way for him to be approached. And he lays that out for the people of Israel. Remember that? You also remember what happened in Leviticus chapter 10. With Aaron's sons who didn't quite follow. They brought some kind of strange fire in and the Lord struck them down. Right? The Lord... The Lord cares about if he's prescribed the ways in which he is to be worshipped. He cares deeply about that. He'd, he had given instructions about how he was going to dwell in the tabernacle. And remember the story um, in uh, 1 Samuel about the transportation of the tabernacle. God had given instructions that you're to have it on these two poles and it is to be carried and not to be put on an, an, an ox cart. And what do some of the Israelites do? They put it on an ox cart. And the ox kind of trips and the cart starts to tip. And who was it? Uriah who reaches up and to steady the, the ark and struck, struck dead. 
God cares how he is to be worshipped. And he doesn't leave it up to our imaginations or devices, as it says. So if you've turned to Acts chapter 17, I think here's a, a great illustration of that kind of language that is used in that quote I just read. Paul is in the city of Athens, kind of a leading Greek city there, center of all sorts of worship, center of ancient Greek philosophy. And in verse 16, or verse 16 of Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter 17, says, now, while Paul was waiting for, for them, some of his colleagues at Athens, his spirit was provoked with it within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Jump down to verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I will proclaim to you. Skip down a little bit here in verse 20, in verse 29. Where he says, being then God's offspring, he's referring to humanity created in the image of God. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Interesting. Interesting phrase there. He continues, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Sometimes this passage is used by as an example of how we should do kind of the regulative uh, the, excuse me, the, the normative principle, how we should seek to try and apply it to a culture. But if you read carefully kind of what Paul is doing here, um, he's not giving permission to just utilize all sorts of things into worship here. He's actually doing quite the, uh, the opposite. We don't try to uh, take the gospel and kind of form it to so it seems applicable to the, the culture. It's quite the opposite. He's taking the gospel and challenging the religious culture. The, the Athenians, they're not, they're not secular agnostics. They're not atheists. Paul is pointing it out, how they were worshipers. I can see you are very religious. The problem for them is twofold. They worshiped the wrong God. And they worshipped the wrong way. And they go hand in hand. God does not say, oh, well, at least they're sincerely trying to worship me. They may get some things wrong, but no big deal. No. Paul is challenging them here and he's confronting them with the gospel of, of Christ, leading right up to his death and his resurrection. Here, one of the reformers, John Calvin, uh, put it this way. Um, and again, see, notice it's the, 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 the risk with the normative principle is that we inherently have this problem of trying to create a God in our own image. And God himself has given us explicit, like he's given us instructions for how he is to be 
worshipped. Writing about this, he says, From this we gather that uh, a part of the reverence that is paid to him, that is to God, consists simply in worshipping him as he commands, mingling no inventions of our own. So, you know, the language is reminiscent of Acts 17 there, right? Why? Because our sin nature is inherited from Adam. Because of our sin nature being inherited from Adam. We really should be very cautious about any kind of human inventions or innovations when it comes to worship. He continues uh, elsewhere with this great quote. We may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. After the flood, there was a sort of rebirth of the world, but not many years passed before men were fashioning gods according to their pleasure. I'll read some more that's not on the slide here. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to his own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed, is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. To these evils, a new wickedness joins itself, and it continues, that man tries to express in his work the sort of God he has inwardly conceived. Therefore, the mind begets an idol, and the hand gives it birth. It says this is part of our sinful nature. And although when we become Christians, we are made new creations, we still have that flesh tendency. And that flesh tendency is to, um, to fashion an idol and fashion him in our own image. And I think there's a risk in that also manifesting in itself in our being innovative in the ways in which he is to be approached. Does that make sense? Or to put it, put it this way, um, someone else kind of put Calvin's words in a different way. There's, there's the God that we want and the God that is. And life gets better for us when we to reject the God that we want and embrace the God that is. So I grew up kind of normative. And my church experience growing up is normative, was normative. But what we do here, why we follow, and this is just laying the foundation for why it is that we do what we do. Um, we, we've moved to uh, the regulative. We want to hear what God has given to us about what should take place in his worship in a New Testament church. So what does God want us to do? Now, I will say this. There is no chapter in verse in the New Testament that goes, you know, like Second Chronicles or whatever. Second, Second Corinthians. Here's the chapter and this is what should include in the worship. You glean it from all over the scriptures. And I, what I'm going to present for you is kind of like eight elements that I think are, have a biblical basis and a scriptural basis for what should be included in our worship. That's grounded in the scriptures. And that kind of forms the, the outline and the structure of what it is that we do when we gather together. And here's the point. Here, it's not just that we do these eight elements. It's the, the way that these eight elements work together to create a story and it re-enacts or re-displays the gospel. 
So let me kind of give a little sketch of kind of this uh, this gospel shaped flow to our worship service. Where we represent, we reenact the gospel in our gatherings. It begins with God making himself known. He reveals himself to his people. And then there's a call for his people, his creatures made in his image to come to God. God's greatness is displayed and then the creature's unworthiness is exposed. God's grace is then conferred on the creature and then the creature receives this this gift with gratitude and responds with gratitude, receives instructions from God and then is commissioned to go for service. You got the kind of basic flow. We come into God reveals himself to his people, his people recognize his greatness, confronted with their own unworthiness. God's Grace is then displayed to them. They receive this as a gift. God instructs them and then commissions them to go out and to serve him. See the gospel structure to this. So here are the eight elements that that we'll use. And you might recognize more of the traditional names that we've used, but I'm, I'm kind of giving some new terminology for them. Here are the eight elements really quick. Revelation. Or call to worship or scripture sentences. And I'm going to be moving really quickly through this. Otherwise, we will not get done. Now, this is not the book of Revelation. This is Revelation. This is God's self-disclosure. His revealing of himself to his people. He condescends to meet with his creature. So you've got to remember right away, as we gather together, we have to remember this creator-creature distinction. And the distance between God as creator and us as his creature is so great. We could never do anything unless he condescends to come to speak to us. And then when we do, we're confronted with his character. We're confronted with who he is. I mentioned Calvin earlier. He referred to these as scripture sentences. That began, he, he had uh, two verses that he used, I think, almost in all of his, uh, his orders of worship or his liturgies. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So worship originates with God. It doesn't originate with us. It originates with God. Reveals, it originates with God revealing of himself to his creatures. So the call to worship, and we recognize that God is holy. So each of our worship gatherings begins usually with, with a psalm or some scripture passage that highlights the character and the work of God and is calling God's people to come and interact with that God. Have you, have you noticed this? Show of hands if you've noticed this in the time that you've been here. So now you understand why this makes sense a little. So that's the first thing we do is we're encountering the living God. And this is so important. The meeting place for God in the Old Testament was around the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle. God's spirit was said to dwell there. And God's people were to 
to gather around and they were to be very specific in how they were to approach him. Friends, you've, you've heard me say this many times. The metaphors that are used to describe the church are those metaphors from the Old Testament. The church is the dwelling place of God's spirit. Don't you know that you are the temple and God's spirit dwells within you? When we come together to gather every morning, we're first thing encountering God. So should that change how you prepare? How do you prepare on Saturday night? Are you ready? Do you prepare the night before? How does things go? How do things go on on Sunday mornings? Are you ready to encounter God? Because that's what happens when we first come. So that's the first one. Revelation or it's call to worship. Second, adoration. So when God reveals himself, you're going to immediately turn and now recognize who he is. And you start to worship him. And this, we would say, is what we do, like singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It leads us to adoration of God. Leads to words of praise of God. Singing of songs. It can include scripture. This can also include other things like corporate readings and responsive readings. But this is primarily the time where we lift up uh, our expressing and acknowledging and exalting the glory of God. We just finished a series on the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with these songs for people to worship. Remember what Jesus did with his disciples uh, at the Last Supper, the night before he was, uh, uh, the night he was arrested, right? At the very end, it says, and they sang a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And here's commands for the New Testament church. Here's two, two passages, Colossians chapter 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Another one in Ephesians chapter 5, very similar. It says, don't get drunk with wine that leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with, uh, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A couple things to note. What is sung? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, some churches that, that follow the, the regulative principle of worship will only sing just the psalms. And I, I get that and I understand that. Except uh, because, and usually at the rate basis is because, well, the scriptures have given us everything that we need. Exactly. But the scriptures also mention other forms, too. So I think that's uh, appropriate for us to include uh, other kinds of songs. Uh, so I think songs of our own compos- composition are fine. I am tend to be a little critical of what songs we do. Uh, not critical of the ones we do, but critical of the ones we would allowed to be done we don't just do whatever one is popular we do kind of look is there a doctrinal and devotional component to it that accurately reflects what the scriptures convey so i remember when i was in college uh, one of the most popular worship songs was was awesome god and it had a, a line in there 
Nobody, I'm dating myself now. Yep. Thanks, John. He affirmed that. Awesome, God. And there's a line when God is, he, when he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the wrist. Anybody remember this? One? Yeah, right? And it was horrible. Yeah, kind of horrible. And I was like, Ritz, like the cracker. I was a new Christian. I didn't know what that meant. And so a little confused. Oh, well, just keep going. You know, awesome God. He's an awesome God. Uh, or you could think of some examples today. And this one probably gets a lot of heat too. But like when heaven meets earth, like a sloppy wet kiss. Remember that song? You know, and it's like, uh, that's a little weird. Just a little weird. And so we tend to pick, and I'm not knocking those songs, but, but I'm just saying, okay, a little. What I am saying is that we do want to have some, like, some doctrinal and devotional depth to what we're singing. And here's why. Here's the second thing I want to note. Uh, who is doing the singing, by the way, in these passages? Well, it's everyone. It's the entire church. To whom are the songs sung? Be careful. Somebody say the Lord. That's, that's one half the answer. To one another. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Have you ever noticed that? Why do we sing? Do, we do sing with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. But the songs that we sing are instructive we teaching one another by what we sing this is why it's important it's not just me being picky it's important you ever thought about that when you gather together to sing these songs you're singing them we're all singing these in one voice we're singing this to each other so this is in a way this is not just about your own personal experience it's also a ministry and here's the third thing to note. The whole church is to be the choir. This is all congregational. So singing is commanded. There was a big controversy here, and you know, with this, this little virus going around. They were like, well, churches, you can gather. You just can't sing, right? Well, that's a little bit of a problem because this is part of what God instructs. He commands us to do when we gather. This is part of the instruction that takes place in the church. So it's a little hard to say, well, you could gather together. You just, you just can't sing. By the way, I just saw a headline um, on the BBC today that there was a study done that they said, actually, um, singing uh, doesn't transmit viruses any more than talking does. Right? So now you could go to church. You just can't talk now. So have you thought about this? Have you thought about how important it is when we sing. Have you thought about your role in singing is actually encouraging and addressing one another and encouraging them? So we sing. Okay. So we God reveals himself. We respond by singing. And then when we encounter God's greatness and his glory, we should respond we should, hopefully, everybody recognizes that we're unholy. We recognize we come into the presence of a holy God. We recognize that we are unholy. When God condescends to us, we recognize his greatness. We, we should realize our, <clears throat> our smallness. When we come and encounter the beauty of God in all of his perfections, we should be... Um, confronted with the ugliness of our imperfections and our sins. 
And so this is where we take a time where we, we do a prayers of, of confession and we claim Jesus' promise in, given to us in 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let me kind of illustrate this flow a little bit. Turn to the other passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Here you have, I think you could look at several places in the Bible where you're starting to see this, this pattern develop. God shows up. <clears throat> God's greatness is manifested. The people recognize, oh, this is God. And then all of a sudden are realized, confronted with their sin. You can think of Moses in the burning bush. You can think of Israel when they first come to Mount Sinai. You have a very similar kind of pattern and flow happen. You can see this in the book of, at the beginning of book of Revelation in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. Um, you could see it uh, in Solomon's uh, dedication of the temple. You, you could see this pattern developing, but here's a little micro pattern. And it's right here in uh, Isaiah chapter six, beginning in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay, what is this? Revelation, the display of God's greatness. Verse two, above him stood the seraphim, each with each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. What is this? Adoration. A declaration of the greatness in God and his glory. Notice verse 5. And notice Isaiah's reaction. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's confession. The confession of his sin. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And so this is individual. But he's also, he kind of lumps all of Israel along in there with it too corporately. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So this is what we do. When we come, we gather together. We, God reveals himself. We respond in adoration. But then we should also respond in confession. And so a couple of examples of things that we would pray from the Psalms, like remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Or some of the other uh, Psalm prayers for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. And then we usually have a moment where you're allowed to say those things, express those things to God in your own in your own words. So revelation, adoration, confession. And then, by the way, notice what happens next in the Isaiah example. Right. <clears throat> he says, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone. I've seen my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Right. He had just said, 
I'm a man of unclean lips. And then you have this, this something is happening here with this burning coal that's like purifying or cauterizing the very things that's touched your lips. And he says, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. So that leads us to this next one, absolution. This is the, the meaning of this word is the, a declaration of the forgiveness of sins. Or a formal release of guilt, a formal release of obligation, a formal release of punishment. We see the holiness of our God. We then we recognize our sins. We we admit this to him. And then every single week we gather together, we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. We come to realize that God has provided for us redemption in his son. The first couple of weeks when, when we were gathering together as Redeemer, and like I said, I kind of just brought my, my baggage of tools that I knew of, you know, the church's, my church experience. And so we would sing four songs. We'd pick four popular ones. It was on the radio. And then, uh, and then I would teach from uh, 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 the Bible. And in the early days, we met on Sunday nights. And in the early uh, days, uh, a, friend of, uh, a friend of the marshals and uh, of mine uh, the Lutheran, I call them, the Lutheran. They just moved to California. And um, so terrible. It's very sad. But he came one time. And so, again, I come from very low church. He come from a little bit higher church thing. And at the end, I was really curious to see what he said. And he goes, hey, brother. And he was really encouraging. Hey, brother, it's just great. Great to be here with all of you and your people. He goes, but I just have a question. When do your people hear that God forgives them? So we'd sing songs, you know, we praise you, Lord, we praise you, Lord, we praise you, Lord. And then I jumped into a teaching and said, hey, this is what like God calls us, says we should do. And was really struck back in the early days, like, huh. And so really explored that idea. Because when did, I mean, if the people are gathering together and they're gathering as the church. And this is the place where God meets um, and they're they're confronted with their sin and they've probably been burdened by their sin and their failings all week when do they come and hear the announcement that god forgives them so that was a challenge and i realized that was missing that was missing so absolution now to be clear we don't receive absolution like from a priest or from a human they don't have power to do that we receive this absolution from god himself we don't receive this from a human source. We're receiving it as it is announced to us in the gospel of Christ. Jesus was delivered up on a cross for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. So we spend this time. We need to make sure that declaration, that declaration happens. Now, on the use of the term absolution. Because some, some people get a little uh, little squeamish with this, um, but I like this term. Now, <clears throat> again, I'm going to quote John Calvin here. He wanted to use this term to describe this moment in the, the, the service. But if you remember that history, they were re really reacting against the Catholic Church, and they wanted to kind of like, mm, that's a little too Catholic for us. And they ended up kind of winning out. But he, in his, in his institutes, he says, um, he says this, the doctrine we teach... Okay? When we talk about absolution, he's saying, the doctrine we teach is free and clear of all of these absurdities that were listed prior to this. 
For absolution is conditional upon the sinner's trust that God is merciful to him. Provided he sincerely seek expiation in Christ's sacrifice and be satisfied with the grace offered him. Thus, he, and here he's talking about the minister, he who functioning as a herald publishes what has been dictated to him from the word of God cannot error. Right? Pastor, you cannot mess up if you declare to people what God's word says. The sinner can indeed embrace true and clear absolution when that simple condition is applied of embracing the grace of Christ. Isn't that awesome? So I was a little leery. I'm like, should I call it absolution? And then I read this. I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll call it that. I'll explain it. That's why we're going to call it that. And so here we will we'll give some uh, scriptural declaration about what Christ's atoning work has accomplished for you and announce it for you. Now here, when we do practice the Lord's Supper, this is where we'll practice, we'll, we'll observe the Lord's Supper, right? Because that's the gospel tangible. But usually we'll have the scripture and, and we'll, we'll teach on that uh, later, a little bit more in depth later. But here's some examples, some biblical examples. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Or this from Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you see the value of hearing that declared to you every Lord's Day? So, revelation, adoration, confession, absolution, and then profession. Here, now let me define this here. I'm not talking about like a plumber, electrician, doctor, or lawyer. This is not a career or occupation. This is profession as in a declaration of belief. Declaration of our beliefs. And so here, this would be a, a point in the service where we would maybe read portions of our, our statement of faith. Or we might read uh, one or two of our question and answers from our catechisms. Or maybe we would recite the Apostles' Creed, which, was, uh, which has done, been done throughout church history. And here's the purpose. The purpose is to affirm what we believe out loud and to do so to one another. So it's a, uh, it's a little instructional for us. So then we move to profession and then proclamation. Proclamation in here, it's the expository preaching of God's word. That's central to what we do and should be done, I feel, in churches. And again, this morning, it's a little different. We're not quite doing what we typically do in that regard, but it needed to, to explain kind of what it is that we're doing. And there's three subsections to this. Usually it's a prayer of illumination. We're asking uh, Paul talks about the, the spiritual man cannot, the unspiritual man cannot understand the things of the spirit unless by the spirit. So we pray for the author uh, of scripture, the Holy Spirit, to help us, to teach us, to illuminate for us. So there's a prayer of illumination. And then there's the public reading of scripture and then the expository sermon. I'm going to talk about expository sermon a little bit when we get to our Titus series. So 
for now, let me just talk a little bit on the importance of the public reading of Scripture. How important this is. Okay, now the basis for this is, you know, a couple of what we believe about Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is saying this to Timothy, his, his, um, um, his protege, who he's left in Ephesus to be pastor and oversee a church in Ephesus. And earlier he said these words, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. I have a lot of biblical examples uh, for this, um, but you can think of Deuteronomy. And I'll just give you the verses. Deuteronomy chapter 31. All Israel, they are told. Moses tells to the Levites, all of Israel is to come before the Lord. And they shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, by the way. And the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it may hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over to possess. Now, this was supposed to be done, he says, every seven years. But eventually in um, in the, the Jewish reckoning there, and eventually they broke up those readings and they did a little bit every every Sabbath when they would gather. And remember, notice this here too about the children. The children weren't just allowed to be there. They were commanded to be there. Similar passage, Nehemiah chapter 8, as they're rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel and they read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading so they would read it and then they would explain it and this is what this word means and this is what this word means Jesus in the synagogue you see this practice right Jesus is the preacher that day and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood to read. They brought out the scroll. He turns to Isaiah and he reads it. And then he rolls up the scroll and then he sits, sits down, which was now he was going to expound on it. This was the practice in the early church. And as a matter of fact, the early church uh, in Colossians chapter four, Paul says, and I've written you this letter. Make sure you send this church of Colossae. Send that to the Laodiceans. And read it, have it read there in their church. And then they're going to send you their letter. And then these New Testament letters went around and they were read along with the Old Testament scriptures. So you get the idea, right? The, the proclamation, prayer of illumination, public reading of scripture, and then the expository sermon we'll look at in depth more. And then number seven, intercession. This is the prayers of the people or the pastoral prayers uh, or petition or supplication. There's many terms in the in the bible for it pastoral prayer congregational prayer or prayers of the people this is a prayer spoken on behalf of the entire congregation and so this is where we address god with our requests we pray for one another we pray for the world at large we pray for the leaders of our world we pray for our own congregation we pray for other congregations we intercede for those who are in authority we intercede for those who are suffering from oppression, 
uh, for those who are poor, hungry, etc. Et so this is why we pray. And it's like sometimes our prayers are long. Because we're, uh, we're talking to God corporately. Uh, I heard a quote uh, about this. I don't have it written out here. See if I can re- remember it. Um, but one pastor encouraged other pastors to really emphasize this part of prayer. Because, see, in the churches I grew up, the prayers were short. They were like 30 seconds. Because that's all people could really stand, right? You know, so it, just do a 30-second prayer. And this pastor goes, you know, you're talking to God. He's present. He promises he's there. You're talking to God. And so he said, pray so long. Pray so long in your services that people get bored talking to the God they claim to know. It's pretty challenging. Pray so long in your services that people get bored talking to the God they claim to know. So intercession. And lastly, commission. Now you have the sending out. This is where we usually have like our our benediction happens here. Notice the flow. We've, We've come. God has revealed himself. We've responded in adoration to him. And we confess our sins. To him, And he gives us the assurance of the pardon through proclaiming the gospel to us. And we profess our faith to him. We hear what his word has to say to us and instructs us. And we pray for one another. And then he sends us out as a church in the world. We even kind of see that here in the Isaiah passage, right? Notice verse 8. And then I heard, this is right after, your sin has been atoned for, he says. And in verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Notice the flow. And then he says, okay, and this is what you're to say. So as we come together and we gather together as God's people, we go through, we reenact this gospel. We represent the gospel. And then God now says, now I send you. Go. Now for us, it usually takes a form of a benediction. And there's many benedictions in the scriptures. And the one that, uh, that I like is the one I, I typically uh, use. And that's from 2 Corinthians 13. Because it's very Trinitarian. Because we're a Trinitarian people. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so with that, let me send you out. As we have just encountered God's presence. As we've come and worshipped Him. And confessed our sins to Him. And professed our faith in Him. And have heard the instruction from Him. And have prayed for one another. Then let me end our time right now by sending you out to go do and share this gospel with others. So I invite you to stand with me for a closing benediction. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father 
and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as he sends you to go. Thank you.